I'm John Peterson of Playing at the World, and you are listening to Save or Half. Talk about old school games and the modern games inspired by them. Happy New Year, everybody! Welcome to episode 38 of the Safer App Podcast, a podcast about old school games and the modern games inspired by them, or in this case, the modern books inspired by them. Yes, we have friend of the show and new fifth DM, DM Jim, I mean, sorry, DM John, (laughs) joining us. We already have DM Jim. Jim is old as Garrett. He's been here forever. (laughs) I came with the place. Of course, uh, this may be the only show he's on. As DM John, but you know, he's been on so much, we figured we ought to make him an honorary GM, DM, sort of like the fifth Beatle. I mean, if it is just descriptive, you know, I, I have been a dungeon master in a game of Dungeons and Dragons in the past. And so, you know, I, I think the shoe fits. I can wear it. Yeah. Okay. And if we t- ask you questions on future episodes, we can just play like your Ringo and, doesn't, and don't say anything. <laughs> Did you so, watch that Get Back thing? I watched all like eight and a half hours of it or whatever. That the oh my god, every every movie. minute of it. Oh, it's, it was incredible. I have not seen it yet, but I've been hearing a lot of good things about it. It's like, I got to sit down and watch some of that. <laughs> well, well, I mean, watch me square this circle. What Get Back has is the same thing that Game Wizards, the Battle for Dungeons and Dragons has. Oh. It's freaking primary sources that are contemporaneous that put the lie to all the narrative history we all think we know about what happened yeah but there's a big difference between having the camera in the room for that amount of time and uh, (laughs) and what we got what we got is like you know a couple of frames of film that we found on the floor like after everybody else cleared out (laughs) like we're using that to reconstruct things but hey it's better than what everyone else has had up to this point and it is a great read so what made you decide to take this proverbial bull by the horns. I know there was some discussions in the past, but nobody ever really decided to do the authoritative what happened book. Especially since I remember after playing the world came out, you purposely ended the TSR period at like 1980. I can't remember your exact words, but I remember you saying something to the effect that you just didn't have a personal taste for covering the 80s period back then. Yeah, some things did change about that, certainly. I mean, I, I really look at playing at the world like it runs out of steam in 76 or 77. Right? I mean, there's, you know, an epilogue that covers some later stuff that talks about Egbert from what I could figure out about Egbert then. But really, the objective of playing at the world was kind of to explain how this movement, this RPG movement, like got started exactly up to the mm-hmm. point when people said, there are RPGs now, and that's what we're doing, and it's awesome. Part of the reason I did Game Wizard certainly is because just from studying so much more of this stuff, I thought I could shed light on this and that, you know, the light that I could shed wasn't necessarily what some of the previous narratives, especially coming from Mr. Gygax himself, had, had suggested. And then it was like valuable to do that. It was, it was valuable to do that for a couple reasons. When you write about the history of systems, which is mainly what I write about, right? I write about the evolution of the systems from war games to role-playing games. That's kind of my shtick. Like, there's a lot of just noise that bluntly was generated by people who were there who kind of have a, a pretty slanted view, right, of what went down back in the day and who have kind of imported all this history that's like relevant to the system stuff 
into this broader story about their heroicism or victimization, right? Or both often kind of transitioning from one to the other. And like that, that noise, I think needed a context. Like I, I think I felt like it would be really handy to kind of show how that noise got started and kind of why the way that people talk about this period is so kind of colored with this very black and white, very, oh my God, like these people were evil. And like, I was the only person that was trying to do something that was helpful kind of perspective. <laughs> and like, but just so much of the, the history that matters to me is like tangled with that stuff. And so maybe the main purpose of Game Wizards for me was to just try to at least show how it got tangled and maybe give us some perspective on what we should and shouldn't take away from some of that later discussion. And there's, it's not just fandom or the gaming hobby. Uh, one of the things I frequently tell my students whenever they want to use memoirs as sources for writing papers is that, you know, okay, that can be valuable, but keep in mind, this is written by somebody decades or after the events and are frequently big apology. Yeah, none of this was my fault. It was their fault kind of books. And, you know, so that sort of thing, I think, is just human nature. Uh, kind of like what they refer to in fiction in first person narratives, the unreliable narrator. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. You're getting it from the perspective of the person, but it may not be what actually was going on. <laughs> and they may genuinely think that's what went on. Mm -hmm. But eyewitnesses can be wrong frequently. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I think anybody is like lying. I don't think, you no. know, when Gary no. Gygax was interviewed, you know, I, I don't want to pick on uh, the Sacco interview, the famous uh, Kingdoms one from the 2000s, where he kind of lays all the blame on the feet of the plumes or whatever. You know, I mean, I think he's speaking from what he feels about that time. And I'm sure his feelings about it were authentic, like it never is bad. Yeah. It's just, you know, what he's not speaking from is like an inspection of TSR's financial ledgers and, you know, who owned what stock when and like that kind of stuff. And when you kind of compare those two or even like staffing levels, things like that, you know, when you put them up against each other, at least my inclination, just my method, right, is that I, I tend to view those documents as, as more reliable than what people remember about it, you know, decades after the fact, especially when things went really badly for them, like <laughs> at the end of this. Well, and that's a point that I had not been aware of when I read the book was, you know, we've all heard, I think, about the Blooms hiring lots of their family and put on the TSR payroll. And yeah, that was nepotism, no argument about it. But while I knew Ernie was part of it, I didn't realize quite how much Gary Gygax kind of did the same. I mean, he didn't do as much, but one gets the impression it's because he had a smaller family. <laughs> That's the impression yeah. I got anyway. It was like they had in-laws and in-laws and in-laws. and Five kids yeah. isn't exactly a small family. No, but how <laughs> no, many of them were ready to work at TSR, you know, other than maybe a, a summer a smaller interns? extended family. <laughs> right. But I mean, well, it seemed like the Blooms were a lot of in-laws. I mean, not the 100 I've heard bandied about before, but a lot. The, the record in Game Wizards suggests anyway that you know, the particular people in the Bloom family and kind of what they were doing was maybe may different in, in character from Gygax family employment situation. Uh, you know, without kind of relitigating re stuff people can read in the book, there were issues with how the production staff was functioning at TSR that once, you know, a formal inquiry was opened into them, the floodgates really opened and like so many staffers were just ready to share what they perceived as, you know, the way that that purchasing department had really, uh, in particular, kind of, kind of been a drag on the organization and that the people running it, since they were relatives of the Blooms, were just untouchable. And that this, this is like a concrete problem. And this is something you see throughout Game Wizards. I'm trying to take things like, okay, we knew, we've heard for you know decades, there was nepotism in the Bloom family. Okay, was it a problem? Well, this is trying to show what some of the problems might have been. You know, Kevin's sister-in-law takes you know, an extended leave of absence, you know, to get a bachelor's degree and, you know, is being paid a stipend of $25,000 a year and like all of her, you know, tuition and expenses related to that and still has her staff benefits and everything else at a time when the company is in a tremendous financial crunch, right? Like, Which I think that- Adjusted for inflation, 
that would be something like sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars a year today. Yeah, and like you know, that's that's a problem, right? And like Ernie running DHS or Ernie working at DDEC, I and mean, I think those are that's kind of different right? <laughs> than like you know a situation where really the staff at TSR understood that there was just this kind of coterie of people who were untouchable who were attached to the Bloom family. And, you know, that it, the demoralization that this caused, I mean, the story of Mike Carr alone, who, you know, Game Wizards talks about how he was sandwiched into this layer of management between Kevin Bloom and one of Kevin's brother-in-laws. I mean, what, what was he going to do if the brother-in-law did something bad, right? And this right. came to a head and ultimately led to Mike Carr, who's again, a founder of the company, their first vice president of production. He was general manager for a long time like basically having to resign, like going and working on like endless quest books. Cause that's, that's the only thing he could do. Yeah. I really I thought your book did a spectacular job of was just using the documentation, outlining how it was a matter of scale and level jumps for the business. Things that weren't a problem when it's seven or nine guys in a house, suddenly like the nepotism is, is very, just because of the scale, it can't have that kind of impact. But as the money starts rolling in the in the company level jumps, suddenly it's a nightmare. They didn't change their corporate structure as they went along. I mean, it's a very different thing to run, you know, a family business with like nine or ten people, right, than it is to run mm-hmm. an organization with nearly four hundred employees. You know, there's no question that Gary Gygax was a master of managing the hobby. That you know, the work he'd done with Gen Con, with various like wargaming clubs and fanzines and so on, just demonstrated how fluent he was in how to motivate a hobby, how to get people engaged, how to get people following him. But those skills don't really parlay into what you need to run like a medium-sized business. (laughs) As soon as I think Gary didn't know personally what every single person in the company was doing at any given moment, which he did, I'd say up until like the Egbert, you know, incident in 1979, um, the company you know, at, at that time, probably had 25, maybe less employees at that time. And then fast forward a year, and they have like 100 employees, there's like reasonable layers of middle management, you know, that it isn't just like Gary running the show anymore. You know, it required a different skill set. And it just wasn't something that a he ever signed up for. Um, and B, that he, you know, really had the experience or training, and so on to really navigate. I want to pay you the best compliment I know how because this is I'm just one guy. But when I read the book and finished it and put it down, I came away with an understanding about how everybody in these narratives I'd heard and some I'd believed in were just people. That everybody just came out more human in the end, and there weren't any heroes or villains. And even Lorraine Williams, I put the book down after reading the historical documentation of what went on and went, well, she wasn't that bad. She, <laughs> What was she going to do in this situation? Uh. ABC. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, right. But you know what I mean? I mean, like it came out in the book that Gary was a very conflicted guy with his own inbuilt catch 22 he wanted yeah. to just write games not be a corporate manager but he couldn't let it go either to anybody yeah. else he didn't trust anyone yeah like, he didn't want to do the day-to-day slog work of running a company but he, he didn't want to relinquish the control either yeah you you, you can't have one without the he other invested unfortunately. so much of his life into it and blood and sweat and tears so kudos for that, because just using the historical contemporaneous records, you showed that the mythologized versions we've all heard, no, no, they were just regular people, and it, the same people 45 years ago that we have now. Yeah, yes. and I mean, let, let's you know put the cards on the table. Like Business stories, seeing people through the lens of business, they don't tend to be pretty, right? You're not seeing people at their best, at their most creative, at their most dynamic when you're looking at them making business decisions. And so necessarily there's a bit of, um, you know, there's there's going to be a bit of a cognitive dissonance for us who are used to thinking of the creative products and what they meant to us and, you know, how successful they were. You know, when you look at this through the business lens, a lot of things look different and Lorraine included. Now, of course, I, I conveniently stop really at the point Lorraine takes over. <laughs> I don't say anything about how Lorraine managed the company or, you know, there's a, a guy named uh, Ben Riggs who has a book that's coming out later this year, actually, that's called Slaying the Dragon that looks much more at that period, at the the Williams TSR up to the um, Wizards of the Coast acquisition. And so we should be getting some more data on that soon, which is great. 
Yeah. I'm glad not to be writing it. I'm glad other people are doing things so that I don't have to do them. <laughs> and I, I've talked to him quite a bit. He's a good guy. I'll be very interested to see whether or not he was able to get Lorraine to speak to him about it. You have a lot of information about things that happened and things that were said. They were mostly from the court records of the case, from what I understand. But some of her testimony from there that you incorporated into the book is like, I don't want to say that I'm apologizing for Lorraine, but like Jim said, you know, I can certainly see where, given the situation that she was having to deal with, you know, I'm not sure I would have made a lot of terribly different choices than what she felt she had to do at the time. Well, and in the end, she never made any bones about she's not a gamer. She's there to run a company. She's not there to be ga- to play games or, you know, enjoy the products, which was a question I wanted to ask. It didn't really come up and I've not seen it much anywhere else. And you may not have come across this in any of your research, but do you know if Brian Bloom was ever really an RPGer? I mean, he was certainly a gamer. Um, I mean, I think I'm right. I mean, I know he liked war games and sports games and that sort of stuff. Sure, but did he actually play any role playing games? I mean, I I would say yeah, from my understanding. I mean, you know, I I'm not sure that fantasy games were his favorite games, but of course, you know, he worked on things like Boot Hill, and you know, like. He certainly must have played Boot Hill, even though in the context of the times, that was a role-playing game. We'd look at it in hindsight now and go, oh, well, more miniatures. Yeah, it was a skirmish war game, really, at least the way it first started. That's why, one of the things that kind of made me wonder. I mean, if you read my other stuff, I think the line is pretty porous, right? <laughs> Between what is a skirmish war game and what is um, a role-playing game. And, right. you know, I, I, I guess it, some of those distinctions are artificial to me, yes. <laughs> Right. I, I, I understand. But I just, you know, I think to myself and it's like, I can't recall a single thing, say for D&D done by Brian Bloom or Star Frontiers or Top Secret or Gangbusters. I'm not even sure he did a lot with Boot Hill other than the core rules. I mean, you know, like I like I said, I mean, I, I didn't know him. Um, and there, there are people in Lake Geneva who are still around who game with him really up to the end of his life. I'm thinking of people like, you know, Wendy right. Swanson Lord, right? Who, when she read Game Wizards, um, when she talked to me about it, you know, I mean, she really said that she wished I could have known kind of Brian the Gamer more. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that that he loved games. That wasn't true of some of these other people, right? That Right. You know, I'm not denigrating him. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm just curious that that was a circumstance. And it's quite possible that he may have fallen into the trap Gary later did. He just did earlier of not really having time to do anything with that games because he's busy running the company. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a bit of that. I mean, you know, I was recently looking at some of Jim Ward's papers from uh, the creation of Metamorphosis Alpha, right? Mm -hmm. One of them is a letter from Bloom that was commenting on the initial submission draft for Metamorphosis Alpha and really stressing how they needed to make it, you know, role-playing game, how Jim needed to like add things like in this place, in this place, in this place. And yeah, I think you see Brian's influence more in areas like that. Where, ah. you know, especially early on, he was helping to steer the direction of things like that, right? Okay. And, you well, know, that when, answers when, my question. When um, Merle Rasmussen's original draft of Top Secret came in, um, well, when, when his initial pitch letter came in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it went to Gary, but Gary, like, you know, punted it over to Mike Carr and to Brian Bloom to, like, evaluate and, okay. you know, look at this as a system. And Bloom was definitely like, yeah, let's do this. Okay, so he at least had enough interest to to go through the stuff like that and everything. So, okay. No, that answers my question. Yeah, that's just what I mean though. I mean, just to be devil's advocate, since I'm good at it. You know, if this is 20 if we're talking about people we know now in 2021, there's a constant need people have to categorize everyone. Okay. So, so he's a gamer, but you know, does he play does he like murder hobo style or is he more of a role player? That kind of thing. We still try and get everybody in those little categories now and it was way mushy back then and it's 2022 but yeah 2022 yes hey welcome to the new year welcome to the new year hey just barely does it have to be i guess so yeah uh, unavoidable it feels a lot like the old year so far i'm just saying oh you god yeah this is oh this winter (laughs) but yeah i mean to liz to your earlier point so i didn't speak to lorraine right and this i talked to a lot of people when i was working on game wizards you know, a lot of people were at TSR at the time, a lot of people were 
either friends of Gary or Dave or or whomever um, that I thought were kind of relevant to the the overall picture. And you know, so I talked, for example, to Flint Dilly, to um, Lorraine's brother, uh, quite a bit about how kind of he saw events playing out. And he was obviously very close to Gary at the time that uh, Gary was out in LA. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, like the court testimony that I used from Lorraine you know, provides a way to give her a voice that otherwise, I mean, I don't know how to give her. Yeah. I know back in the day, she talked to Dave Ewald, actually. Ewald may be the last person <laughs> that she spoke to when Ewald did his um, Of Dyson Men book. What was that in 2013? Huh. And like, you know, so you, you'll see a bit of her in that. But honestly, I kind of found the immediacy of the court testimony, just the fact that it is so close to the time of the events and also mm-hmm. that it's under oath. I mean, that doesn't, it doesn't count for everything, but it counts for something, right? Mm-hmm. That like, we, you know, because if you read this court testimony, 75% of it is lawyers posing questions and people saying, I don't remember. Right? <laughs> That's <laughs> the easiest I, thing to say. I have no recollection of that at this time, Senator. Exactly, yeah. right. <laughs> but like the, the 25% that's not, you know, things that people are kind of willing to put on record that way, I think they're they're fairly considered, right? They may have a slant. They certainly have a slant, given that there's like a conflict, a dispute that people are in court trying to, yeah. you know, trying to resolve. But things like, are at stake. Yeah, but but at the same time, like you also got to be careful because if you like pull some shenanigans and somebody has like a piece of evidence that suggests otherwise, like you you may have a problem. You can go up for perjury. Yeah. And so Tim, I mean, has a, Tim has a resentment to this day that he wasn't called for the Arneson court case as a witness. Tim was an interesting person to talk to, uh, Tim Kask, when I was working on this. One of the things that I was desperate to get information from him about when Heritage was suing TSR in 1977, and part of the reason for that is because just through my endless sifting through this, I actually found Tim's deposition that he gave in that case. And this this was over, actually, the reason Tim was being deposed was because uh, this was over ads for Heritage being bumped from Dragon that they had scheduled and presumably like paid for that were like moved to a different issue. And at the time, TSR and Heritage weren't in dispute. Um, because TSR had decided to go with minifigs as the official like vendor for D&D uh, figurines at the time. And so this this caused all kinds of bad blood between Heritage and TSR. But I mean, that, that conversation with Tim highlights another kind of difficulty you have working with this material, which is Tim was like, I don't remember doing that. Right. <laughs> me showing him this and he's like, there was this, oh, well, that, that's definitely me. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Uh, you know, and like, and you, I get that a lot. Right. I mean, a lot of these conversations are pretty much that short. Tim and I did actually go through it and he was able to shed light on a couple of the points in that. That case, for example, was really good at showing how um, Mary, how Gary's wife was running this, uh, the Joe Powell agency, as they called it. You know, her yeah. maiden name was Mary Joe Powell that, that uh, took the commissions for all the ad placements in Dragon Magazine. And that's like one of the few places where we have like really good, like, you know, again, court testimony about how. Joe Powell functioned. So it was definitely, it was, it was worth me asking him, but, but that is a difficulty that, you know, I find these things and I'm pretty sure they're interesting. And I go to the people and like, what can you tell me about this? And they're like, ah, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since I am older, I can tell you first person that I was a teenager in the seventies. And if you start drilling me on everything I said and did in 1978, I, you know, I like, is this you on the record? I don't even remember being in court in 1978. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I think about things that I did, you know, in the 90s or something, if somebody, for whatever perverse reason, took like some interest in something I was involved with and came to me about it, I would have no idea right? like what it was that I had done with this gaming club or, you know, with this computer thing or whatever. I'll, I'll take your word for it. You know? <laughs> Speaking of the whole, you know, Arneson Gygax thing. That was one of the segments that I read where you get, quote unquote, the rest of the story that, you know, I at least had no idea of some of the nuances of, you know, how it all started. I just, it was both illuminating and kind of heartbreaking to read. It's like neither one of them's totally blameless and... Now that I've read all of that that you've covered in the book, I'm not really sure I can take a side anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, I mean, I, I there hope aren't you know. any sides. 
Yeah, it's like, you know, I could I feel for Dave because I can see myself also becoming embittered. And I can also empathize with his indignation over, you know, the contract he was asked to sign and, you know, all that stuff. But then he also sabotaged himself with his flouncing out the door in the first place. And it's like, who takes legal advice from their uncle? <laughs> and, and as I point out, everybody in, in the early business, uncles were the only people everybody knew who were lawyers. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm going to ask my uncle, the car dealer, what I should do regarding legal matters. <laughs> oh, no. So his uncle was a lawyer. Uh, yeah. For, oh, at yeah. least there's that, you know, but, you know. Yeah. There, whether there's Dave Arneson running up and all but stealing that plaque at Origins for, for D&D right under everyone's noses. But then you've got... Gary Gygax's utterly irrational war against Origins to begin with for so many years. It's just kind of like, well, it just reminds us people are people. And people are people. Yeah, these these, these people are not saints. I'm not sure that they were sinners either. Um, I think they were dealing, look, this fell out of the sky into their lap. Like, that's another thing that Game Wizards really tries to beat home. Nobody thought this game was going to be a big deal. You know, the $300 idea became the name of one of the early chapters. Because, that that you know, was the best part of the whole book, how you were able to use the records to put a price on what they really expected that document they were signing to share royalties meant to them at the time. Yeah. yeah. And like, hundred bucks. Like when, once you see things in that light, then, then you realize this is always going to be a game of catch up, right? This is always going to be, this is getting, as it gets bigger and bigger, like, what does this mean for me? Right, like, what is my what? What are my just desserts out of this? And nobody knew, but like human beings, everybody wanted what they could get from it. <laughs> it's not bad, and it's perfectly natural, and it's yeah. just that just created this environment where, again, to to me, the 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 worst side effect of that is just the damage it does to our conception of the history of of how things actually started because of all of the propaganda and polemics that had to be unveiled to like, you know, grind the gears of that legal case, just, just turn this all into a, you know, finger pointing exercise where, you know, all you can really do is throw up your hands unless you can maybe go back and at least show why that, that dispute is kind of grounded, not in what happened in 1972 or three or four, but in a bunch of things that happened in 1976, 1977, right? <laughs> yeah, and when Gen Con and Origins were arguing over whether they had 1,200 people or 1,500 people <laughs> versus 1,200 people or 1,500 people or 1,800 people, and then you note that you know that none of them could imagine a Gen Con with 60,000 people. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And that's just it's so endemic to human nature. And when we read these stories, we read it with a yeah, but not me attitude. That's those dummies, right? Like I wouldn't people, do that. No, no, no. You know what I mean? Like everybody wants to win the lottery when it would destroy 99% of our lives. What if our, what if the save or have Patreon suddenly clocks six or seven figures? What would happen to the four of us? In, in well, for one thing, we'd be forced to review gazetteers. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd, we'd have to go back to whatever the Patreons want. But you, but you know what I mean? Money hits the table and things get real. People get weird with money. Yeah, and that and that's unfortunately really what the story's about. And I mean, it sucks. Like I wish it didn't. <laughs> like, but at the same time, I think you know, just understanding the things, understanding like procedurally. Okay, you know, to, again, to your point, Liz. Like, what really happened when Dave left? And like, how yeah. did this dispute start? I mean, it started as a dispute over did he quit or was he fired? Right, and that's like one mm-hmm. aspect of it. And I I still don't know. Right, I and honestly, it's one of these things that you that shows it's a signpost that shows the limits of what you can achieve with the evidence. Cause I, I don't think I'm missing a piece of paper, right? Like, I think I know everything, like there's no piece of paper that could come to light that would convince me either way at this point that he quit or that he was fired. <laughs> like it just, it's just ambiguous. Right. But how that then snowballed into this, the dispute over the home's basic set, which, and that really the, the AD and D stuff was just kind of tacked on to that dispute. I mean, that's a piece of context that, you know, I, I don't believe has been out there as part of this narrative before, but like understanding it, I think gives you so much more grounding in like why Arneson's legal case went the way it did and kind of what, what the real stakes were in it. The background you uncovered on that was so interesting, John, because it's like, okay, the contract was signed for any version of Dungeons and Dragons and then money starts hitting the table and the discussion starts, okay, does that include just the rule book or everything in the box? It didn't include 
Blackmore, but it did include Greyhawk, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly everybody's splitting hairs and everybody wants their fair share. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, so to me and, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I really try not to pass like legal judgments as I read this, you know, but I have talked to a lot of lawyers about this. The original contract, the 75 uh, contract, not the 74 one, the, the contract that was litigated just kind of talks about the game or game rules called Dungeons and Dragons with like not a lot of specificity. And yeah, the, the fact that that contract was signed on the same day that the contract for Greyhawk was signed, this April 7th, I believe, of 1975. And that, you know, it was kind of clear then there was a silo that D&D, you know, royalties meant that box and, you know, Greyhawk was something else. And like the royalties of that went to Gygax and Coons and not to Ernison. Say the same for Eldritch Wizardry, right? Or say the same for gods, demigods, and heroes. You know, this notion of what it was that the contract was supposed to apply to. You know, the, the reason why Holmes Basic was like the perfect point of ambiguity was precisely because it was just an edit of what that original box had been, right? Now, of course, mm-hmm. import stuff from Greyhawk. There's like all this muddiness around it, but it was nominally on its surface. Like, you know, Eric Holmes just edited you know, something that was the authors were still Gygax and Arneson. Once that ambiguity entered in, I think any intention that they had in 75, that there was kind of one silo for this product, a different silo for that product, really just got thrown to the wind. And like, you know, the case effectively, you know, was was certainly not one that was going to be decided um, easily for TSR at that point. What I found interesting was the, you know, it kept recurring Arneson's argument of, the creator behind a game as opposed to the writer of the game mm. kept coming up over and over again. And it it was like he, he couldn't quite accept that there's a difference. Or rather, there is a difference, but legally, there's not a difference. Well, and, and this was TSR's argument, certainly. was I mean, and Gary... Till he was blue in the face, swore that he wrote every word of the you know original three books, and that Arneson Arneson's contribution to it was not textual, right? Right. Like, now, now you know we can we got to kind of bracket that a bit. I'm not gonna, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I would say exactly that, but I know what he means in the sense of mm-hmm. you know I I do think that from what I can tell of the historical record, you know Gygax took the initiative right and I, we cite letters and game wizards that go through this that he's going to take the pen he's going to take a stab at the rules you know send me more stuff but like Gary kind of arrogated i would say that to himself right and that's what generates copyrightable material to your point right like what it is for the part of games that is copyrightable are the rules and the art and the the actual printed product that comes out not right this, fundamental idea behind it. And that was the disconnect with Arneson. Right. And you and- have to it's important to parse those arguments out too, because what what what's legally true is not the same as just the debate everybody loves to have. Who created what to the who contributed what to a partnership that resulted in a creative work? That's an eternal debate. Yeah. Lee Kirby, Lennon McCartney, and the easy metric that no one uses is just look at what the individual partners created by themselves before and after the partnership. And you can get a pretty good feel for who who contributed what. That was my point that I was about to make was that if you look at the other work that Arneson's done, it seems like 90% of it always had someone doing the writing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, mean, maybe not 100 percent, but obviously, you know, he's obviously and there's nothing wrong with that. Arneson was an idea guy and there's nothing wrong with being an idea guy. But to get something out into the market, you need somebody to actually sit down and write some rules. Yeah, I mean, that this is super complicated for some of these cases. I mean, you know, like the whole thing about his ships, the line game, like manuscripts of ships in the line that are quite polished and look, you know, effectively publishable existed for some time, right? And just never quite made it into print. And exactly why is very difficult to say. Things like the first fantasy campaign, you know, kind of mashed up a lot of Arneson's notes and a bit of correct, you know, connecting text, but like, I mean, he basically wrote what's in First Fantasy Campaign, right? Like oh, it was I believe that. Edited and managed and you know stitched together by Bill Owen and those guys at Judges Guild. But like, you know, I mean, that, that that's his book. The the question of how you get from here's some ideas, here's some text, here's some rules, and get that to turn into what the FFC became. Yes, mm-hmm. there's like an editorial process that's applied to that. You know, I, I know what you're alluding to in the sense of since I kind of follow Arneson's POV after his departure, 
Um, mm. Really, I think I pick up artisan POV in the book and at the end of 75 and kind of carry it through to the end of 78. Certainly, there's a lot of things that he says he's going to do that just don't materialize, <laughs> like, you know, repeatedly. Right. Did you have access to any of his papers? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I've, I've had access to a lot of everybody's papers. <laughs> All right. Well, I actually got a, I don't know, maybe it was just my impression. I've read the book twice now, and I just got the impression you may have actually had more access to Arneson's information, particularly, I guess, letters he sent to other people, than maybe even Gary's? Um, I think it varies. It vary, so it varies by era. And, you know, do recall, you know, I have spent some time with the Twin Cities people, and, you know, I right. certainly got had the chance to scan a lot of stuff that they had. I mean, going back to, again, I was doing Playing at the World, right? Right. Um, and, you know, more, more subsequently. And, I mean, so it, I think it varies kind of by era. Um, maybe for, you know, when I talk about point of view, certainly I do have a lot of access around that 78, you know, 77 time without which you couldn't tell Ernest's story. There's no doubt about it. But for the earlier stuff, when you look at the earlier sections, when it's more Gary point of view, I mean, there you're seeing more Gary stuff, right? Yeah. Maybe it's just, you know, so much of this point of view of Arneson hasn't really been brought forward before in a coherent manner that it just feels like there's more there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I tried to present what I consider to be, and it's always an editorial decision, right, on the part of somebody who writes a history, what what I felt to be the indicative statements from these people and, you know, things that I thought shed light on their character, their ambitions, their understanding of kind of the process. And so I, I think without that, uh, you are left with a bit of either mythologizing or or simplification, uh, I kind of like the. Well, obviously, I'm a big fan of the the style of historiography, right? Where I just kind of write like Zagat reviews, where I kind of cut and paste <laughs> in these snippets of what people say and kind of let those stand rather than providing my own judgment on them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you get a perfectly good sense of who Gary was and who Dave was just from listening to them. I, I don't need to tell you anything more about it. Right. It's got to be tricky business. I, I would I would give anything to just be in the room and see your style and your approach when you're trying to get these documents from uh, family members and people still living who have a, a strong vested stake in one side or the other. That's got to be tricky because they don't know what you're going to go off and write. I mean, we've seen that movie over and over again, right? <laughs> Yeah. Kind of Kolshak the Night Stalker. You know, there's people that just don't want to talk or give you anything, probably. Well, I think it'll it'll be worse now that Game Wizards is out. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that, that may be harder for me going forward. But I think in general, people who kind of respect the sort of work that I try to do have been pretty generous with me, actually. And, you know, it runs the gamut, right? There are people who really don't want you to who know the kinds of things I like to write and don't want to talk to me. There's plenty of them <laughs> out there. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, and if you look through the acknowledgements in the end of the book, there's a list of people who I said were helpful and who I talked to and helped me work through this. You know, I was very grateful, for example, that Mike Carr was willing to like read this and like give me comments, <laughs> you know, when it was in a relatively mature state. And obviously I spent a lot of time talking to him as I was doing it. I guess I felt Mike Carr's perspective was particularly valuable for, well, three reasons. First, because he was in this early, right? He was working with Gary and Dave on Don't Give Up the Ship, editing that before any of this TSR stuff started. Second, because he came into TSR quite early and was there for the part that matters, right? He was an executive at TSR from like, you know, 76 up to 83, and so, I mean, his access and understanding of this and of the the principles and kind of what they did is pretty much unparalleled. And interestingly, the third reason is because Carr, I don't really think working at TSR was the most important thing that ever happened to Mike Carr in his life, right? Yeah. He has a different perspective on this because he went on to, you know, do be successful as a commodities broker and to like have a rich life that involved like a lot of other things. And so he he doesn't mythologize it in, you know, kind of inflate it artificially from what it was. And so I, I tend to find his perspective on this to be very, very measured. I wrote B1 in Home Space. It's not going to be on his tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, you know, again, he was the guy editing the player's handbook, right? Editing the monster manual. I mean, he was somebody who was really in the thick of this. He came from, 
you know, the Twin Cities circles initially, and then kind of moved down to Lake Geneva. And after there was this break, after um, Arneson and McGarry left, you know, he and Sutherland stayed on. Sutherland even longer than than Carr did. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I mean, just his understanding of these people was much more in the business context. Like he really, he had like a business relationship with Gary. Like they were friendly, but they weren't like, he was not a heartfelt friend. You know what? One of the biggest surprises, I know you guys talked to Steve Marsh periodically. One of the biggest surprises to me working through this was how valuable Marsh's stuff was, the stuff that Gary Gygax put in writing to Steve Marsh. I don't know what it is about Marsh, but Gary had just an unusual level of kind of candor and openness talking about his personal life, about his finances, about... I, I think he just likes the cut of, of, of Steve Marsh's jib for some reason. Yeah, he's kind of a guy you just feel comfortable talking to. I feel that way, yeah. It's just something about him. We've had him on the show. I like his jib fine, too. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're, dead, you're dead on about Mike Carr. I, I got to interview him. He graciously agreed to be interviewed with me briefly for the Goodman B1 book. And and he would tell stories, but there was no angst involved. It was just very matter of fact, this is what happened. Listen, I wrote B1 and Gary gave me this royalty percentage. And next thing we know, the box set blows up and I'm making a living just off my royalty. And then, you know, Brian said, okay, we've got to fix this. We need a different module in there. You know, and, but he wasn't tore up about it. Yeah, I wrote an article about that myself, actually. That's, uh, I think, on Polygon or something. The, the, the short answer is, I mean, a lot of people who didn't really have a dog in this race, but nonetheless, who had very deep access to this, um, they were very generous to me with their, their time and resources. So, And not, none of this would have been possible without that. I imagine a primary source for you is collectors who have ended up with a lot of these papers. Also true. Also very true. So Bill Meinhardt, I've worked with for years, obviously, you know, Bill has tremendous resources of this and no, I'm doing okay. I've got a couple things, you know, they're, they're pretty cool. So that, that kind of helps. I can remember um, being at 330 Center Street in, I think it was, must've been 2014. And, you know, Dave McGarry walking into the room and handing me a binder with a copy of all the letters that he got from Gary right? Like in the making of uh, the board game dungeon and the data that's in those letters just, and it's not always what the letter is about. It's just offhand things that Gary might happen to mention about their plans or about how much of this they're printing or what their sales are like, or things like that. I mean, really so much of the early narrative is populated through things like, like that. Mm-hmm. And Gary as well gave me a lot of his time um, talking about it. I'm, I'm sure that I, I don't know if he's read it or not. I haven't spoken to him super recently, I'm sure he won't be thrilled about some of the things that um, that are in the book, but like you know, there's no question that I I could have done it without people like him um, giving me a lot of their time. Hey, oh. um, oh, sorry. Oh. Go ahead. no, you go ahead, Corbett. No, you go ahead. No, <laughs> I will not. Come on, Corbett. Back there taking editing hmm. notes and not asking questions. Corbett, you're up. Corbett's in this call. Oh, hi, hey, man. <laughs> no, I was just kind of curious because there was there was one thing that. Uh, complimentary at the end of each chapter, just for anybody who is interested in wanting to get the book at the end of each chapter, John covers like stats for the the business. So you can know, like, this is how good they were doing at the end of this year. And then at the end of the next chapter, yeah. how good doing the does really it like great. an adventuring, like an adventure oh, yeah. or something. But I'm just curious because I didn't know TSR backed the U S uh, Olympic team for bobsledding. Oh, yeah, I needed to ask about that. And like, how much Scrooge McDuck money did they have <laughs> well, where, yeah. where stuff like that was really going on? Did they do that? So they, they, they gave them like jackets or something, right? Like it wasn't like a huge thing. Oh, okay. The, the, there was some, and there was some connection. Uh, it'll, it'll come to me. Somebody on staff was related, I think, to, to someone who was on the to team. The blooms. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> it is a family affair. that's a good guess. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Let's not kick a mother down. So, so they didn't like give them a big publisher's clearinghouse check or something. It wasn't quite like that, but they, but oh. they were an official sponsor. So again, all it takes to be an official sponsor, you, you, a lot of these, you know, look at a NASCAR car. It's covered with stickers from various things that, you know, this person gave you the seatbelt, right? It's like that kind of thing where they, they were an official sponsor, and like. Oh. I want there to have been a jacket with a little D20 patch on it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> or even just the TSR Morley, you know, or something. That would be cool. But this was a point, right? I mean, the, the Lucius Newbury story, the story of the, the steamship that they tried to pull up out of oh, uh, God. Geneva Lake. 
Like that's a better example. Oh, right, that, right. That was a substantial amount of money, right? That why were they doing it? Like what? I mean, in, in the short answer is, you know, they're trying to build a good reputation with the city council because it'll give them more favorable terms for, you know, their zoning and everything else, right? There, there is a business imperative to do things like that, especially in a small town, probably. Well, but when you just look at the state of their finances compared as they actually were compared to what they thought they were at the time they were making those decisions is where oh. it gets like crazy. Yeah, that just blew my mind that they dumped, what, 60 grand on that? Yeah. Yet they wouldn't respect the lifetime subscriptions for Strategy and Tactics magazine? Mm. I, yeah. Maybe That's you a- should pay attention to your base, you know? positive with the community i mean would it really have cost them that much to respect that uh, i mean certainly if you view uh strategy and tactics and the related magazines as an independent division it would have bankrupted that division that's for sure <laughs> i suppose but if they rolled it into dragon publishing which, which i'm not huge. even sure they were a, they were an item by then but they were and it, and it was huge by then already by the time they had to shut off snt they were around they were getting to a hundred thousand subscribers uh to dragon by then yeah and so it was big and it, it was a major profit center for the company well i just know that just outraged so many people by just the chintziness of it even if you know you ignore the actual dollar amounts i mean they it seemed to me they really took a hit in the community with that they did but it, it was the wargaming community and the origins people and they were mad at strategy and tactics, and in particular at SPI, right, over the problems they had trying to get their staff on board. And so it's not surprising as a decision, just given how acrimonious things were. But yeah, as a public relations gesture, it was unimaginably bad. Like, you know, that, yeah, that, I mean, that meanted everything that everybody thought was true of DSR. But we'll spend 60 grand on a boiler and a and a steam engine that will later donate to the Smithsonian. Right. Uh, I just got the impression when they started talking about the different things that popped up through there, like they had, they had that breaking bad moment where they walk into a room full of money and went, wow, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, not, not too far from it. And again, they were going to refurbish the hotel Claire and turn it into, you know, a recreation of its historical hotel and everything. I mean, they had all kinds of crazy notions at that point. And so many projects that never happened that, you know, especially when you start looking at DDEC and like some of the things they're looking at as, as potential media things beyond just movies, theme parks and like, you know, I was about to ask, there was a theme park in there and there's a, there's a crazy tiny little game company trying to do the theme park thing today. And that's what I pull from your books. This is not what your books are about, but this is what I pull from them that I really appreciate it. The elusive shift showed that the flame wars were always there. I mean, they didn't even have additions to argue over in the 70s. So we'll argue over this edition. And and the same thing with the game wizards. I mean, the only thing that's changed is now we've got Twitter and Facebook to be outraged on. We have social media. That's really the only difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at alarms and excursions like the social media of its time. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Things don't real people don't change. Yeah, people, people don't, don't change. change. We keep asking the same questions. We're asking the questions now that we were asking back then. Why do um, paladins have to be lawful good? Yeah. It, <laughs> <laughs> well, any other final questions we want to ask before wrapping this up? Yes. What are your next projects and what can you tell us about them? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it is forbidden. As usual, um, I'm working on some stuff. <laughs> it may I'm not at liberty to say. <laughs> it may come out at such a time as it comes out. Ah, uh, I do have a question. Are there any moments that stand out to you where you were surprised or just became really excited by something that you uncovered during your research? I mean, certainly the $300 idea, that's a perfect example of something that, yeah, when I saw that, that restructured the way I thought about the early days quite a bit. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and for people who haven't read it, that the buyback value of the game when they assigned the copyright to TSR in January of 1974 was at a maximum of $300. Fair, fair <laughs> value, but in no way, you know, you know, no possibility of exceeding $300 was the language, right? I mean, there are a couple, I'm sure there are a couple other things like that. I, I liked going really deep on Egbert and the, that stuff, like just being able to play that out moment to moment. 
I kind of, you know, I, I like the really crunchy confusion, the fact that nobody really knew what was going on for so long. And basically until it was over, <laughs> people were just completely confused about it. And sometimes not even then. Yeah, right. <laughs> And Have the problems read? it created for TSR weren't the problems we all think. They were great problems. They could barely handle. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of the, the later stuff, I mean, I think I do a better job than my old essay, uh, The Ambitious Sheridan Springs did at explaining, like, 1985, right, explaining Gary's ouster. But even that, there's, like, a lot more nuance in the story for me this time around. Like, there's a lot, lot more I just don't get, like, how how, you know, really what was legitimate and what wasn't that happened in the course of that. I think I, I see that as being a lot more complicated. And that's, I gain willpower when things are more complicated, when the easy answers are dispelled, when you can kind of see the messiness of, of history up close. Well, that's when it's interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show, taking time out of your busy jet-setting lifestyle. That's right, yeah. Um, the COVID <laughs> jet-setting really has not uh, been a big part of my life. But... <laughs> But thanks for having me. It's always my pleasure to be here and to hang out with you. And I hope I get to see you in person at uh, some cons this year. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> right. Well, rumor has it, Corbett's going to be making it to North Texas this year. So if you can make it, that would be great. We'd wow. all be there. Very nice. I mean, I may try. Uh, certainly, I will try to make it. I like to go to North Texas. It's a great con. I was only there for, I think, like 20 hours last <laughs> this past year. <laughs> But um, I'll try to make it. All right. Well, I guess barring anything else, Liz, did you have a shout out we need to make before closing uh, up? Yes, I did. I would like to give a shout out to one of our newest patrons, Herb N. He's become a backer of the show. Thank you, Herb. We appreciate you immensely. And all of the rest of you that we have mentioned before. But don't think we've forgotten about you. You're all awesome. We love our patrons, and please don't give us a million dollars and destroy our partnership. <laughs> <laughs> please don't make us have to do <laughs> gazetteer reviews. I don't know. I wouldn't mind backing a bobsled team. Come on. No. <laughs> As thanks, give everybody, give yourself a thousand experience points. Don't forget your prime <laughs> rec bonus. <laughs> Say good night, everybody. Good night. See ya. Good night. Good night. Free arc for $300 at most. <laughs> <laughs> and we're out. Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half. Like a 68 and five